Thanks for downloading another special edition of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is going to be the final Theology Beer Camp episode, and this is Nathan Gilmore from Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. If you've been listening to these, you'll remember that I interviewed James Younger from National Geographic Channel, Barry Taylor, Adam Clark, Christian Pyatt. You've heard some conversations with Todd Littleton and Eric Hall. You've also heard that big uh, crossover podcast with Newsworthy with Norsworthy, Crackers and Grape Juice, Todd Littleton, a whole bunch of people. This one was sort of the uh, main event, if you will, of Theology Beer Camp. If you listen to Homebrew Christianity at all, you know that Trip Fuller is a a giant John Cobb fan. Uh, Faniac, I'm not going to sing it because Trip does it so much better. But this is a talk that John Cobb gave on the last morning of the event. Just to put it in a little bit of context, this was day two of the Trump administration. The women's marches were going on in Los Angeles, as well as in other places. And so John was talking to really an audience that was much smaller than he should have been talking to because a lot of people were at the protest. So what you're going to hear now is his full-length lecture, and it was to a fairly sparse audience. Uh, But the understanding came to be that later on, Uh, each of us who were podcasters who were there would get a chance to interview him on the main stage in front of the full assembled homebrewed Christianity universe, uh, which you'll hear in a little bit. But for right now, I just want you to listen for a couple things in here. First of all, uh, John Cobb is a genuine legend in liberal Protestant theology. Uh, His process, thought, inflected theology uh, has really been, you know, quite influential, most notably on Trip Fuller and on the uh, Homebrew Christianity Project. Uh, But the first part of his lecture where he digs into education, he says a lot of stuff that I, as someone who's much more conservative than he is, can basically be in his amen corner. So listen for that, but listen as well for when he turns to his talk on process theology proper. Uh, He's going to make the claim in there that if we start not with Greek thought, but with the Bible that we eventually land somewhere close to process. This will become important later on, I promise. But without further ado, this is John Cobb at the final morning of Theology Beer Camp talking about education and process thought. I don't need to introduce you. I've been introducing you since I met you. You are, you are a remarkably obedient group. I don't know whether you obey anybody else, but at least you obey <laughs> Trip Fuller. <laughs> while, we, while you were hearing about a wonderful trip, at first I was looking up in my date book to see if I could squeeze in something else because there's a meeting in the Azores, which is not an unpleasant place to go, from July 25th to 28th the 11th International Whitehead Conference. Love to have you come for that also. (laughs) Well, thank you for this opportunity. I don't think that I grew up expecting to be at a beer festival, but uh, if they were all like this, then I think I would transfer from the Methodist Church to the beer community. A few days ago, I met a very interesting young man who is an Afro-Brazilian. I think that's 
the, the language one use, uses, who had discovered process thought. He told me that he had been going to school and studying science, and then he found Jesus. And when he found Jesus, he gave his life to Jesus. And then his teachers told him, although the, the teachers of the faith, the Baptist teachers, told him that he would need to give up science. So he gave up science. Then he discovered that there were ways in which you could be both a scientist and a faithful follower of Jesus. And he had learned that in relationship to what he heard about process theology. And so he wanted to learn more about process theology. Well, I think it's a tragic situation in which people think that following Jesus and learning what, the science, what science can teach and what we can learn from science is a necessary choice. And because I live in a liberal context, all of my liberal friends are likely to say, tut, tut, it's those bad fundamentalists. I am myself inclined to say, tut, tut, it's those bad scientists. And not many people understand why one should be tut-tutting in this kind of way about science. But I have become truly distressed by the developments of the last 50 years in relationship to our educational system. Throughout history, education and the institutions that promoted education have been seeking to open people's minds, of course to provide information, but to help people to understand how to put together what we might simplify by saying facts and values. In fact, the whole idea of separating facts and values as two separate spheres of inquiry is a very recent development in the history of education. And I think that the fact that school universities now pride themselves on saying that they are value-free, and they're rather accurate in describing themselves in that way. They think values are not significant, that they are not true and false, that there is no real better and worse and the abolishing of value concerns from education is a horrible loss. Now, I'm, I'm also critical of fundamentalism. I don't mean to say that fundamentalists are right about all the things that they do. I'm just saying, I think that the teaching of the university is worse than the teaching of the fundamentalists, and that therefore, we, we, whereas in general in our culture, the funda fundamentalists are criticized right and left all the time, 
universities are still exalted as places of knowledge. I'm afraid some people still say places of wisdom, but they are not seeking wisdom anymore. So I, in the book that uh, is sort of vaguely the background of what I'm saying, I do spend a little time talking about these matters and how they came to be, but I have more passion in trying to generate a realistic picture of what our schooling is doing to people. I think it is encouraging meaninglessness, confusion, chaos, and it is encouraging a devaluation of what is most important to be valued, namely values. I'll very briefly sketch the history of how this came into being, because if we know how something came into being, we may be able to get some handles on how to begin to change it. And I do think there are possibilities of changing it. This is a recent development in the history of schooling, not something that has been... so that changing a recent development does not have quite the problematic character that changing something that has always been the case does. Okay. Now, René Descartes is almost universally recognized as the creator of modern philosophy. And modern philosophy is very closely connected with modern science. And both are very closely connected with modern education. So the ideas of Descartes have played a central role in the transformation from medieval to modern thought. Now, Descartes had good reasons for taking the positions he took. And they have had some good effects. I don't... I hope I don't sound like I'm demonizing Descartes or saying he didn't have a positive contribution to make. But the net effect, on the one hand, has been to generate an enormous amount of scientific knowledge and technological development, but on the other hand, to separate human beings from values beyond the value of money and prestige, and things of that kind. Now, the, the, the crucial step that Descartes took was to say, we should not ever introduce the idea of purpose, or indeed anything subjective, into the explanation of the natural world. He was convinced that the natural world is purely physical and operates on purely mechanistic principles. This was a reaction against the Aristotelian science of the medieval period. Aristotle generally recognized as the best scientific thinker of the ancient world was recognized in that way by the medieval scholars, and so they greatly admired and appreciated him. But 
as almost always happens when we celebrate somebody's thinking, we may shift a little bit the pattern of emphasis. So medieval Aristotelianism was in its scientific work overwhelmingly focused on what Aristotle called final causes. That means purposes, goals, aims. And when, when the medieval scientist was studying the human body, they come, came across an organ. The question they asked was, what is the function of that organ in the body? And when they had figured out what it was there for, they felt they had a, an adequate understanding of it. Now, Descartes thought that blocked the more serious questions of explaining how it worked. So once you know that the function of the heart has to do with the circulation of the blood, etc., etc., you stop studying it. He said, no, it's a pump, and you've got to figure out how the pump is operating. The pump is a mechanical thing, and you need to understand the physical causes that are making it function the way it does. And it turned out, unquestionably, that science went much deeper, became much more powerful and significant as a result of ignoring or even explicitly rejecting any subjective aspect of nature. Now that meant nature has no values in in itself. Nature has value only insofar it has value for human beings. Descartes was very sure that human beings are not part of that nature. Our bodies are. But our souls, our psyches, our minds are emphatically not part of that nature. So Descartes did not do away with with values. Descartes was a theist. He, He believed in all kinds of things that he got from the Catholic Church. He was a devoted member of the Catholic Church. So I I hope I can make him clear. His views were radically anthropocentric, and it was the natural world, everything except the human soul, that was understood as this great machine. Well, the next development of great importance for what I'm now talking about, skipping over all kinds of things that are relevant, (laughs) was the discovery that we are part of nature. Now that I associate, or I think we all associate, primarily with Darwin. Darwin was the one who showed, demonstrated, I think decisively, unquestionably, that we are products of the natural world. Well, if we are part of nature, then there are two choices. One choice is to say, in that case, Descartes was wrong about nature. We need to rethink what nature is. If we are part of nature, we know that purposes play a role in nature. Our purposes do. The purposes of scientists 
play a large role in reshaping the world, creating technology, etc., etc. We know that Descartes was wrong in thinking that animals have no subjective experience. Descartes thought it was all right to engage in vivisection. You didn't have to be concerned about the fact that the dog you were cutting in pieces was suffering because it's just like a squeaking door when when the dog complains. But now we, had, now we would say the same thing then is either true of human beings or it's false of dogs. In my view, common sense teaches that nature is not like Descartes said it was. Nature is not simply mechanical. Living things were never adequately, could never be adequately understood as machines. Especially animals cannot. And we especially as human beings cannot. So once, from my point of view, that is the right move to have made. And there were a lot of people who thought so and went to work to rethink nature. There was a generation in which the educational system was quite open to these reflections. Now, many of you know that the single figure who I think did the best job of rethinking the natural world was Alfred North Whitehead. But Henri Bergson and William James and John Dewey and C.S. Peirce and scores of other people were on that side of the argument. And that side of the argument could enrich colleges that were involved in the liberal arts. There would be a shift in the way biology would be taught. Instead of teaching biology simply in terms of mechanism, you could take seriously that living things acted in ways that inanimate objects don't. And there's a lot of evidence for that. So this is not to be less scientific, it's really to be more scientific, to pay more attention to the facts and the evidence. Sadly, from my point of view, after a generation in which it really seemed that the new naturalism, the one that took all the dimensions of human experience seriously, had a chance of transforming education in one way, the opposite choice was made in the university world and has reshaped schools, so that now value-free teaching is, and that means not only you don't have a distorted perspective, but also you don't talk about values, has affected the whole schooling system. Now, I still believe there is a chance to reverse that decision. That's maybe an act of faith. I I don't believe anybody really believes that human beings are nothing but machines, physical machines. The word zombie is the accurate word to use to describe what the university teaches us that we are. 
But I don't believe anyone who is teaching us that we are zombies really believes that we are zombies. Well, I think even universities might pay some attention to the need to be consistent between what we say we believe and what we really believe. I I can be very cynical about this because I see so many people who are so good at claiming they believe things that they actually don't believe. But I'm I think that it does generate a, an internal problem in the lives and thinking of many, many professors. I think also that physics, like would, many physicists, would like to have a consistent physics. But now they don't, because they discover that the quanta, out of which the whole world is made, are not like they're supposed to be in order to make, in order to support the mechanistic physics. So if the very most foundational part of physics doesn't agree with the rest of physics, there's a chance that people would rethink the rest of physics to make it conform to the fundamental rather than just say, well, this is anomalous. Well, I could go, go on on this topic a long time, but I do want to say that I would love to enlist you in my campaign against the modern educational, and again, I really don't like to say educational, schooling system. It's the way schooling has been institutionalized, I think, leads to consequences that are very, very serious. Existentially or sociologically, we have a huge problem that the only value that people are encouraged to have is the value of making money or gaining status and better positions in society. You cannot build a democracy on that. You cannot build a sustainable society on that. And to invest huge quantities and to, to channel so many of the best thinkers, morally good people also, into communicating that which is destructive of the human spirit, I think is a crime against us all, and I, I don't want to be silent about it. Okay. So, how can that be changed? Well, I will say one great hope came to me when the Pope spoke out in a brilliant and beautiful encyclical, Laudato Si. Laudato Si says, we must integrate our knowledge of the world. Ignacio wants you to look at a book he brought. But we must integrate our knowledge of the world scientifically, with our concern for the poor. And that means we must integrate also our concern for the sustainability of the planet physically, which is a very different matter, with our concern for justice in human relations. It's called integral ecology. That's the language that he uses. We had been using the language, which we actually got from China, of ecological civilization, but we mean the same thing. Basically, we mean 
a different way of organizing our lives that will bring about a healthier society based on community and justice, and at the same time will not continue to destroy the natural context in which we live. Now, this is a value-filled vision. If you subscribe to those values, you still need a huge amount of information of the sort that we need the scientists to help us get. This is not a rejection of interest in science at all. But it does mean that scientists need to think about what they are studying with concerns for sustainability and with concerns for how human beings and the rest of the natural world should be integrated with each other and with openness to learning about the rich values that nature has and how they're related with the rich values that human life has. And this would be a deep change from the way in which the educational system has been shaped in recent years. Now, I, I think this change can happen. I hope I'm not just crying in the, in the wilderness. I think it is a wilderness and I'm crying, so I guess I am crying in a wilderness. But I'm hoping that it can make contact with where a great many people in higher education already are. I think thousands of teachers would like for their work to be truly beneficial for their students and for the wider society. And right now, if you ask what is the basic effect of the universities, the research that they're doing, has very, very little to do with the real needs of a world that is heading for self-destruction. Only a few places, the weather, Students of weather, climate, I think they are helping us, so I don't mean there's no help, but it has very little to do with what's taught in the economics department. In the economics department, they're still telling us the one goal we have is to increase market activity. That means using up the resources of the earth faster. That's got to be changed. Okay, the, the hope that I have is first of all for Catholic universities. Catholic universities have never claimed or asserted that they are value-free, but they've gotten most of their professors from universities that train the professors to be value-free. So I don't think that you could say they have fully escaped. But at the same time, since they officially do not accept that goal, and since they want to support what the Pope claims is for, I think there's a chance that they may actually lead a profound reformation of higher education. We are now working on 140 Catholic university presidents signed a document saying they wanted to support Laudato Si. How much has happened, I don't know but we're going to do our best to get them to act on what they said they wanted to act on. And it's doable. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not asking for something that we can't give any 
specific indication of how to affect. Now, of course, the, the book that I have written, and uh, Tripp is partly responsible for the book's existence, so it fits very well with this uh, context, is on the theological side, although I think, theolo- I think what I've been talking about is theological. I, my view of theology is very broad. I, I define, when I found out that Theology as an academic discipline doesn't seem to have much relevance to what goes on in the world. I decided that wasn't the theology I wanted to teach. So I redefined theology. Actually, all I did was to go back to the really traditional understanding of theology. I think theology is thinking about important questions from a consciously Christian perspective. I think what I've been saying about higher education is a a Christian comments about higher education. And I think higher education and the whole of education is an important question. So that's what Augustine did. That's what Thomas did. That's what the reformers did, although the reformers tended somewhat to narrow the scope. They were all too ready to sort of separate the theological from the scientific. And that came to be the way in which Protestants have largely dealt with these problems. So, if we then say theology can also include reflection about itself and about its own tradition, then we have to say, Okay, living in a world of desperate need, a world in which what Christianity has become to all too great an extent is simply incredible and often damaging and destructive, then what one who really wants to be a Christian needs to do is also critique and evaluate the Christian tradition. When I turned my attention to trying to do that, one of the first things that strikes me is that very little attention in Christian theology is paid to Jesus. Now, that may be a very strange thing to say. We think of all of the Christological creeds and all that. That's is a way of attending to Jesus, but it's not a way of actually trying to understand who Jesus was and what Jesus taught and what Jesus believed and what Jesus wanted people to do. So when I say the lack of attention to Jesus, it's that kind of concern. I believe that in the Gospels, in the synoptic Gospels at least, God speaks directly only twice. Uh, You may find something that I've missed, but at the time of the baptism, God announces that this is God's beloved son. And then in the transfiguration, God again speaks. This time after he says, this is my beloved son, God says, listen to him. 
Well, that seems reasonable. (laughs) But the church has rather systematically avoided doing that for a long time. If you listen to Jesus, you won't focus your attention upon sexuality. He has a remarkable little to say about that topic. You will focus a lot of attention upon money. Jesus had a lot to say about money. He said, you cannot serve both God and money. That's a kind of quick summary. Well, it's fairly obvious that our society and modernity in general and the educational system have decided to serve money and not God. And it's distressing to me that the church has not been a little bit critical of that. You would think if we were at all interested in Jesus, we would not want a society totally devoted to the service of what is incompatible. In the Methodist church, we have a horrible addition to the creed that got in in rather unfortunate circumstances, which says homosexuality, the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with the Christian faith. And we've been struggling to try to get that out for a long time. I would say that the quest for more and more money is incompatible with the Christian faith. At least it's incompatible with the teaching of Jesus. You can define the Christian faith in a way that has nothing whatsoever to do with the teaching of Jesus. Then I'm not a Christian. I don't want to be that kind of Christian. But if we pay no attention to Jesus, the claim that we are worshiping him is a very strange claim to me. If we do pay attention to Jesus, then I think that will lead us to think of God in a different way. And, of course, the book, Jesus, Abba, is primarily a book about God. I decided I would not spend my time just repeating what I had said in the book. But it is significant that the only word in Aramaic for God for father, excuse me, not for God, is Abba. And so when Jesus speaks to God and about God, he uses the language of Abba. I grew up calling my father, and as long as he lived, I called him Papa. And you understand Papa and Abba are slightly different forms of what people hear Babies, the sounds that babies make. And I I learned recently that Koreans also call Father Abba. So that this way of hearing babies speak is not limited to a few languages. I think if we ask the question, what connotations does it have? when we use that kind of language, we would not have fallen into the traps that we did fall into. From my point of view, one of the first major traps that has profoundly changed 
the understanding of God from Jesus' understanding is the attribution to God of omnipotence. Now, my great my, my great opposition to what I was calling the modern worldview is that it makes the physical world omnipotent. Everything is explained by physics. Ultimately, we will reduce biology to a branch of physics and so forth and so on. I think to say that there is one cause of everything that happens, whether it's the physical world or God, is totally inconsistent with our actual human experience. And since the Bible does not teach it, unfortunately the Latin translation of a proper name for God does introduce Almighty. But once that idea that God is almighty or omnipotent got into the the liturgical life of the church, it has become more important theologically to many, many Christians than anything Jesus said or did. To me, to base the whole of theology upon a misrepresenting element of Jerome's translation is a horrible travesty and distortion, and we should be working systematically to free ourselves. Just as I said, no one really believes that we are zombies. No one really believes that they are automata. But if we have no power whatsoever, we are automata. God does everything. So the most vicious acts that human beings perform are just as much the acts of God as are the greatest expressions of human love. I don't think anybody believes that, really. I hope not. But nevertheless, we teach it. Since it's not biblical, since it's incredible, since it has damaged a great many people and today is a huge obstacle to getting thoughtful people to pay attention to Christian teaching, I don't think it's a minor matter that we expose it and find that we can speak of the power of God We must speak of the power of God. But the power of God is the power of love. It is not the power of control. Of course, God does many things. But God does not control us. God lures us. God calls us. God urges us. God empowers us. God does all sorts of things. All sorts of things that are excluded in principle once you have adopted the modern well, Cartesian worldview and extended it to human beings. But then to say, because God does many things, that God does everything, it just doesn't make sense and it is terribly damaging. There are other steps that we have taken along the way 
that have made it Christianity less promising, less hopeful for the world, which have distracted us from the, the real task of being servants of God, being faithful to Jesus. But I won't try to get into them. I am deeply convinced that there is no real problem in being deeply faithful to Jesus and believing in the God that Jesus witnessed to and believed in and lived for, and at the same time being completely open-minded, much more open than science has become to all the evidence that we can possibly get. That is, to me, good news. We don't have to live the lie, either lie, either the lie that the churches have so often promoted or the lie that the modern world affirms. We can live the truth. Let's vow to do that. So that was John Cobb's talk. I mean, hopefully you heard some good stuff in there. Like I said, uh, this guy is a genuine legend in liberal Protestant theological circles, and it was honestly a pretty big thrill to be on stage with him to be able to pose him some questions. Now, as you'll hear in the questions that come, I really latched on to his early claim that if you start with the Bible rather than Greek philosophy, you're going to end up somewhere like process. I think that that's right, depending on what parts of the Bible you pick out. Uh, but, as you're going to hear from uh, Tom Ord when his interview comes down the pike on the Christian Humanist Profiles feed, um, it really depends on what parts of the Bible you have privileged to, so that it really becomes a question of sort of canon within a canon. If your canon within a canon points in this direction, you'll probably end up in a uh, process place. If your canon within the canon points this direction, you're probably going to end up at a basically Calvinist place. And if you try to read the Bible without doing the canon within a canon thing, what you're going to end up with is a lot of contradictions, a lot of testimony and counter-testimony. You're going to end up with something that resembles, I think, Walter Brueggemann's project, which is where I tend to fall. And I imagine you'll hear as this interview goes on that I am pushing somewhat in a sort of Walter Brueggemann direction with these questions. Now, after a while... Uh, and after we have this strange moment where he defines resurrection as the paranormal apparition of the dead, um, we'll talk about that a little bit later, uh, I switch gears and I do talk to him a little bit about education because I like that part of his talk so much. So please note that this is not simply a gotcha session on my part. Uh, it really is one where I wanted to pick John Cobb's brain because I might not get that chance again. So, I've probably talked too much here. You want to hear the interview. Uh, and, you know, if you don't want to hear the interview, you've probably turned it off already. But, without any more delay, this is my interview with John Cobb at Theology Beer Camp. Howdy. Nathan is an English professor in Georgia. I bet you couldn't tell. Um, tell us, he, he's helped start the Christian Humanist Podcast, and like Homebrewed Christianity... He works not just to start his own podcast, but a whole bunch of other podcasts. So before you jump in, tell us all the different podcasts Christian humanists have started, and because uh, there are all sorts of different topics. And certainly, people. certainly. 
We started out with uh, three friends from the PhD program in English at the University of Georgia. The Christian Humanist Podcast talks about philosophy, theology, literature, and other things human beings do well. We try to celebrate whoever we're talking about, even as we critique it. After that, we started an interview program called Christian Humanist Profiles. We talked to recent authors. I've already arranged to talk with some folks here about books that you've written. We've also got the Christian Feminist Podcast, doing feminism and faith. The Book of Nature, Science and Faith, City of Man, Politics and Faith. All of these are available on iTunes. We promote them all from our website, ChristianHumanist.org. Uh, and Trip, do you want me to just go right on into the interview? All right. Well, listeners uh, of the Christian Humanist podcast, I'm sitting here with Dr. John Cobb, a, a legend of theology, and I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased to talk with you. And uh, since this is a sort of prayer service, I'm going to begin with a confession of sins, things I have done and things that I have left undone. Uh, what I have done is acquired three of your books, and what I have left undone is about every chapter after two in each of them. As it turns out, the, uh, the students I teach want their papers graded, and so I had to do that. So if ever during this talk you have to tell me, child, you just need to read more, I will accept that as a uh, rightful correction. But I'm interested. You just need to read more. All right, very good. (laughs) I'm interested in in process, although, like I said, I'm an amateur at it, largely in terms of this category of of divine agency. You talk about divine power as love and not control. That's certainly consonant with a good deal of the biblical witness. I'm interested, though, because in legal terms is where I'm going to start. We're going to work our way back around to the Bible You've got a category called negligence, where someone has a responsibility to do or to keep something from happening, and we can rightly accuse someone of negligence if they fail to do it. And when we accuse someone of negligence, we don't negate what it is to be a human being or anything like that. And it seems like there's something analogous, not identical, going on in the scriptures, especially in the Psalms and the laments. When I am surrounded by the wicked, they prosper, they kick me in my teeth, they pull out my hair, they pick my boogers. I don't think that's in there, but it seems like the the psalmist is assuming that it's a right utterance to call God to account for preventing these things from happening. I'm curious, because I'm not well-read in process, how does process theology read a psalm like a lament? Well, the the specific feature that you were describing is the assumption that God could do things that God doesn't do, right? And I think that uh, process thought tends to try to understand God in terms of the things that God does do, which are things we know God can do, Mm -hmm. and to attribute to God the ability to do things that God doesn't do we would need some evidence mm-hmm. of that 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 we don't have. Now, uh, when I was growing up, we used to sing a little ditty about God has no hands but our hands. Okay. And I think that's a theologically profound okay. statement. That doesn't mean God doesn't do anything. But God doesn't do the sorts of things that can be done by hands and feet. Okay. So let me ask you this. I mean, within that process context, what kind of utterance is a lament? Is it a theological error? Is it an understandable coping device, but something that doesn't really connect with what might happen? Mm -hmm. What is a lament? 
Well, uh, of course, just the word lament doesn't entail any of what we were talking about. We okay, can, I'm, I'm using it in the, in the sense of, you know, biblical studies, lament psalms and such. But yes, go ahead, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, so uh, I think that it would be impossible to agree with all the theologies that can be found in the Bible. Okay. And um, if, if the lament inherently implies that God could do something but is failing to do it, mm-hmm. then that's a theology I would disagree with. Okay. Let me ask you this, then, as a matter of church practice, uh, if we were having our beer church here, and we found in the lectionary that we had two lament psalms that were to be recited during the service mm-hmm. if we were following the lectionary, uh, what, to what use would you put those lament psalms? Well, or would uh, you cut them out entirely? That's also a possibility. Uh, this is beer uh, church. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there are a few passages that in the Bible that I would really prefer never be used. All right. Tell me about some. Well, there's one of the Psalms that wants, either wants the people or God to Kill all the kids by crushing right. their heads Bl- against the Blesses the one who dashes your little ones against the rock, yeah. Psalm 137. I, yep. I think I mm-hmm. might leave that one out. Okay. Okay. But to leave out all, I mean, for a community to leave mm-hmm. out all the passages in the scripture that some people today uh, don't find useful, desirable, so there would be a serious mistake. Okay. Why would that be a mistake? Because I'm curious. I like this. Okay. Well, uh, I and all the rest of us need to constantly encounter a diversity of ways of thinking. Okay. And almost always one finds some... uh, uh, some authenticity... Mm-hmm. Sometimes it may be simply uh, that there are experiences which evoke feelings that just have to be expressed. Okay. I'm not quite happy with going as far as dashing the. Okay, <laughs> I, I, I no, I'm, I'm all right with that. I'm all right with that. But uh, people in desperate straits uh, need to be able to express their utter desperation, mm-hmm. and uh, not feel that in church you can't mention it. Okay, all yeah. right. So I want to I turn from <laughs> you know, the lectionary reading to a more homiletic context. You know, if, if we are going to be you know, good disciples of John Cobb, because Trip Fuller has told us so, and we love Trip, <laughs> and we find ourselves preaching a text, uh, let's turn away from, you know, the Psalms for a moment, we turn to something like the parting of the Red Sea in the middle chapters of Exodus. You know, this is uh, an act that occurs without human involvement, other than, I guess, you know, Moses using his staff somehow. I didn't review the passage before we started talking, so I apologize for that. But it seems that the water just kind of parts. Uh, there are no human beings with large fans making it happen. How do we preach that if we're going to take process seriously? Well, uh, whether, I mean, under what circumstances this answer would apply, okay. I don't know. I think that because the whole notion of miracles is one that many people are interested in, mm-hmm. and they're getting clearer about 
the miracle stories and what miracles are and so forth mm-hmm. is uh, worthy of preaching about. Okay. Yeah. I, I might take it as an occasion for pointing out that in this story, there are two different stories, two, two different ways of reporting the incident. Okay. Go One ahead. of them has a strong east wind. Yes. Blowing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, dry, making it possible and then it stops and the waters come back. And that's a story that, uh, is, is remarkable that it happened that way. Yes. W- wonderful. But, uh, doesn't press us to introduce the category of miracle. Okay. Uh, but then there's another story superimposed on that, mm-hmm. which does away with all uses any role of natural occurrences, mm-hmm. and thus seems to be a purely supernaturalist imposition right. with the walls of water standing yes, on indeed. both yes, sides. Uh-huh. And I would say that seems to me to be a clear indication of how important events can get told and retold okay. and become more and more astounding. Okay. So as 21st century faithful... How would you describe the relationship in which we stand to those ancestors in faith who would read that story and they would say, well, that it, it is simply thus? Because, I mean, part of what I understand, and again, I'm getting a lot of your work through TRIP, so tell me if I'm getting you wrong. What I understand from your work is that, you know, a theology that takes science seriously has to do something with those texts, but it isn't what a 13th century or a 6th century or a 3rd century believer would do with them. How do we relate to those ancient ancestors in the faith? Well, I think it's that we go back to the most ancient ancestors, the ones who originally told the story, Mm -hmm. and then we reflect upon this whole history of how stories get told and retold, and we know Mm -hmm. we are involved in doing the same thing today, Mm -hmm. but that uh, if we are interested in what actually happened it often requires some digging. Okay. And what what sorts of things does that digging entail? Because I assume that's a metaphor. You don't. Oh. You didn't bring a shovel. <laughs> well, uh, in this case, you you dig and discover that the original cause of the of that being able to cross was an east wind. Okay. Now uh, I'm putting it in an extreme way. I myself believe that there are many events that take place that cannot be explained scientifically. Okay. Given, do, do given the mind? nature of modern science. Okay. Well, this, the whole world of the paranormal phenomena, okay. parapsychology, mm-hmm. the influence at a distance, okay. and life, uh, uh, encounters with people who have died. I mean, there's just so much. All right. Because I'll, I'll just go ahead and confess another sin. When I hear those stories, I immediately go, Ebenezer Scrooge, you're, you're a bit of undigested beef. There's more grave, no, more grave than gravy to you. No, hmm. I messed that up twice. There is more of gravy than of the grave of you, sir, he says to Jacob Marley. Uh-huh. Are you telling me that I should take those stories more seriously on their own terms? And why? Oh, well, uh, the business about... The water standing on both sides. Oh, I'm talking about ghosts. You brought up ghosts. I didn't bring that up. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
Wait a minute. Oh, you mean talking, talking about people who have, who have experienced their relatives and so forth? Yes, after yes. They yes, I, think. I, I didn't think I was talking about ghosts today, but okay. now I am. <laughs> if, well, I don't think they ghosts in the usual okay. understanding of ghosts. But <laughs> All right. Do you think uh, you think that the rev- all the resurrection stories are ghost stories? I mean, is that a language you would use? Ah, uh, not necessarily. No. No, I hope not. Yeah. Okay. So, so. <laughs> no, but but I think that you, there are many stories that you should take much more seriously. Okay. And the university teaches us to take. Okay. Yeah. All right. No, I'll take that reprimand. I deserve that. I yeah. deserve that. Okay. <laughs> so I mean, I'm I'm a person who has gone from you know a state university PhD program. Now I'm a professor at a fairly conservative evangelical college in Georgia. Yeah. I I was fascinated by the part of your talk today about that transition from the research university to the Catholic university, yeah. and, I, and my hope is that we can translate that somehow over into an evangelical college like my context. I hope so. What kinds of differences do you see there? What kinds of common ground? Uh, well, the kind of, of education I would like to see would be based on what do these young people most need for their full human development. Okay. Which certainly includes spiritual development, but is by no means exhausted by spiritual okay. development. Yeah. Unless you consider all things spiritual, which I tend to do. Okay, that's another way to go. Okay. By that spiritual <laughs> development, that includes sports and mm-hmm. uh, sing. Anyway, I, I don't think that's an issue between us, so we'll let okay. that go. Yeah. Then, secondly, what, what role should these young people play in the world? What are the needs of the world that they can apply? Okay. Okay. If you start out with that kind of question, I think we would no longer have any academic disciplines. Say more. I'm fascinated. Li- liberal arts would fit okay. much better. All right. Liberal arts were not, and they were a Greek creation, but they got Christianized. Yes, they did. And I think that in the Christian form, the liberal arts are much more likely to benefit students okay. than, um, and to prepare them to give healthy leadership in society mm-hmm. than any of the academic disciplines that have replaced them. So okay. that would be one big shift. Well, good. I'm interested in that. I want to follow up on that. You say... <clears throat> You want the students that I'm teaching to take on some sort of leadership in society. My guess would be, and I'm only guessing here, you can tell me if I'm wrong, that a sort of imposition from on high of their vision of the Christian life would probably not be what you're imagining here. No. As you think about the students that I'm teaching, and I mean there are other professors in the audience, the folks they're teaching, what kind of role would you like to see our students play as they exit the the Christian college, the uh-huh. university, and go out into the world? What does that service to the world look like? Well, my view of the world is that it is in a very desperate situation right now. And I think that reflection about uh, what is happening and what alternatives there are to what is happening mm-hmm would be a first step already in the development of a curriculum, but mm-hmm. then also constantly within the curriculum so that you right. don't have just some advanced ideas imposed, but are constantly working on it together. And uh, 
I think that that given, of, of course, you'd want them to be able to um, find a job, and that mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. practical considerations have to enter in. As they remind me every day. I know, but th- <laughs> but they they should not control the educational system in the okay. way. Okay, so I think there are. I mean, I think that there's need for that kind of leadership in all of the professions, and there's a great need of it in the business world. Okay. And then there's the non-governmental organization, and mm-hmm. there's the church, and all of them need that kind of leader. So okay. I'm, I'm not sure I've answered your question because no, I've had to that's say... No, that's a great direction. That's all a right. great direction. Okay. What's interesting, though, and, and this is one of the things that, you know, again, I've heard largely at secondhand, but I've heard it a little bit as we've talked today, is um, a... A suspicion, I would say, maybe that's too strong, maybe it's just a concern about the influence and the intrusion of Greek thought Uh into Christian theology. And it might be that I'm expanding the realm of this too far, but it seems Mm -hmm. to me that writers like Plato, Aristotle, even Homer can give us a vision of a life that exists for the other rather than for the self that can actually be a good companion, if you will, or a, you know, uh, at the very least an auxiliary to the witness of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, what place do you think, if any, does the reading of old Greeks, I teach a lot of them, it's a personal concern, mm-hmm. what place do they have in that Christian education that you're thinking about? Well, well, I, I, have, uh, I think a lot about the axial period, and I, you know what I mean. Say a little bit more for our listeners. Yes, yes. Well, it uh, it has been pointed out that in the middle of the first millennium before Jesus, developments took place more or less independently Mm -hmm. in various parts of the world that introduced a kind of value that was transcending the cultures and Mm -hmm. really dealing with the question of what is humanity as a whole about it, mm-hmm. and what are the goals. Of, and these, uh, varied, the answers varied greatly. Certainly. So there, it's not that there was one set of ideas that emerged, but I believe that uh, what emerged in each of those cultures mm-hmm. uh, is the source of value thinking to this day. I agree. There are maybe some new things, but basically... Mm-hmm. That was laid out, and I think all of them have a contribution to make to the future of humanity. Okay. But uh, I think it is a mistake to read, say, to read the Buddhist sutras with Aristotelian assumptions. Okay. I don't think you'll ever understand them. I, I agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that. And I really, I think if you read the Bible with Greek assumptions, mm-hmm. you will not understand it. Okay, that's fair enough. That's fair but enough. But that doesn't mean it's not a good thing to learn about the Greeks, too. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, this has been the Christian Humanist <clears throat> Podcast, special theology beer camp edition. Dr. Cobb, thank you a lot for talking with me. Thank you. And thank you, audience. <laughs>
Trip had the Crackers and Grape Juice crew up there with John Cobb, and when they were done, Trip went on an extended rant, uh, basically attacking the kinds of questions that Jason Michelle and Tier Hardy and I believe Todd Littleton was with them were asking. Uh, and he did it sort of in the style of uh, Key and Peel's little bit about Obama's anger. So Trip was going to be the anger of John Cobb. So you'll hear him in this next segment, you know, talk about what Cobb didn't say. He goes on a, he says he's going to do three, but he ends up doing five because it's Trip Fuller, after all. Uh, objections that John Cobb might have articulated uh, had he the, what, boldness, rudeness, however you want to say it, the anger to actually go after me in the way that a Trip Fuller who's had a few beers at said theology beer camp would go after me. I'll let you listen into this. One thing about it is he ranted after I was already off the stage, no microphone in my hand. I never had a chance to reply to Trip Fuller. I want you to listen to him here, but then I'm going to come back. We're going to have a talk about some of the things he said about me, about the Bible, about God. We're going to talk. Here's Trip's rant. So I, had, I, had three, I had three what Cobb didn't say. Uh, comments, you know, Nathan, this is a sign of affection to passive aggressively say things. One cop wanted to pause, but it would have been a PhD seminar to tell Christians to stop letting David Hume define what a miracle is. David Hume shouldn't define it. And you know why? Because David Hume had a picture of the world in which God and the world are separate. That's stupid. It's not biblical, it's not scientific, it's not smart, so suck at David Hume. And Christian theologians that keep using David Hume's definition of the miracle should go to hell, but John doesn't believe in hell because God's almost as nice as John is. Second, there is violence in the Bible. Liberals edit out miracles out of the Bible. Conservatives edit out basically everything Jesus asked, talked about, and did, and everything that got him killed. What does a process person suggest we edit out? when there's a worship song that includes killing kids. I'm just saying, if there are only three options, I would go for the one that edits out violence to children. Remember, you just saw my child. Cora was playing. Hashtag team process. Hashtag I'm not against baby killing. All right. Then there's a number of discussion about education. And cops just trying to say that education is formation. And that uh, if you're in the discipline of educating people, you should actually care about how the knowledge materializes things in the world for other people. Guess what, people that are ordained? That's what a sermon is. And if you want people in their vocations to, to actually embody goodness, then maybe you might want to call economism out as a world religion that's killing, and pil killing the poor and pillaging the planet in your sermon next week. And if you don't, just tell us who you really work for. Hashtag capitalism. Hashtag D-Trump. All right. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that cop actually would have ever said those things. I'm just saying it's okay. He, he nodded to hashtag D-Trump because that's a double meaning. Anyway. Um, but last, lament psalms are in the, in the Bible. I'm really tired of quoting the Bible to people who think I don't read it. <laughs> lament psalms have the possibility of being honest about our experience. 
It's very good. I'm fully relational that you should be able to be honest about your experience to God without thinking God thinks you're talking about metaphysics. Honestly, Christians, y'all get really worked up. You can tell the truth about your experience in any moment. God will not freak out. Also, God does not have to follow all of your assumptions. Maybe you should move along and realize that lament psalms give us the possibility of being honest about reality and are unrelated to whether or not everything that happened in the world is connected to the omnipotent phallic symbol in the sky. Um, And the last thing that I noticed is that Cobb, unlike a Christian humanist, uh, really wants to believe in the resurrection. And, uh, you know, I just want to pause with that because... I've been in a lot of conferences at Claremont with process people. And we should just, uh, for a second, hashtag Cobby Lobby. Um, know that moment where the process person's like, I don't want to give no ghost account of the resurrection. And you may be saying to yourself, what, is Cobb going to try to argue for resuscitation of the corpse? No, he's intelligent. Um, you want to know why? Because it's non-theological for a Christian to want to talk about the resurrection that doesn't include God giving life to material existence. And if you think the new life God gives needs a dead Jew who is fully faithful to Abba for it to be true, then you have a really small view of the resurrection. John Cobb is 100% confident that no matter what just happened, The God who is love is present and shares what happened and offers new creation to it in each moment with possibility. And if you think that is a liberal, wussy version of the resurrection, then hashtag (laughs) D-Trump. So that was some pretty harsh stuff, wasn't it? Well, let me talk a little bit about the things that Tripp said here. First of all, the David Hume rant. This is something that Tripp started doing a little while back. I imagine someone who did a scholarly study of the Homebrewed Christianity podcast could probably find a date where Tripp invented this David Hume rant. I've heard it a number of times, but it definitely started someplace. So let's talk a little bit about David Hume. I mean, in his work, uh, he does have this section on miracles. He does say that a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature, and he does this with the rhetorical purpose of ruling certain kinds of speech out, which is what makes Tripp's rant interesting because he seems to have a similar aim when he does that sort of thing. He wants to rule out certain accounts of miracles uh, to make it possible only to deny miracles or to talk about them in a pretty exclusively processed way. If you'll notice, When I actually interviewed John Cobb, I wasn't asking about the nature of miracles, although that's where Cobb himself wanted to go. I wanted to ask, given that these texts seem to understand these events in certain ways, what role do those texts have in the community? Uh, Later on, we'll talk a little bit about that same question when I talked about the Lament Psalms. But really, what I wanted to hear was, what do we do with the Bible, given that certain parts of it don't really fit with the process picture of the world? Um, as you hear, you know, Tripp doesn't really address that question. He goes on the, you know, David Hume thing. So be it. He also wants to talk about editing things out of the Bible. Psalm 137 is one that John brought up, not me, I'm almost certain. Um, once again, you know, I never suggested that, you know, it become part of the regular lectionary readings. 
But, you know, Trip was playing to the crowd. I grant that. I don't blame him for that. I mean, it's a it's an event, so I mean, you want to keep the crowds amused and amuse them he did. But when he turned to the Lament Psalms, that one's a little bit more interesting to me. Because the Lament Psalms really do assume in their rhetoric, there's a certain logic behind it that says that God who has done things for Israel, again, the Exodus comes to mind, um, is not at this moment protecting the righteous from the wicked, is not this moment providing for the faithful, is not this moment guarding the poor against the exploitations of the powerful. In these Lament Psalms, the psalmist doesn't only express this emotion that Tripp was talking about, but also expresses a confidence that God has the capacity and that God will at some point have the inclination to restore things aright, to make things good where right now they are not good. Once again, I mean, this picture of the world doesn't really fit with the kind of process theology that John Cobb's talking about, that Tripp Fuller is talking about. And the reason that I pressed this question to John Cobb in the interview was that I, I wanted to see, okay, I mean, if his claim is that if we start with the Bible, we arrive at process theology, what about these parts of the Bible, first Exodus, now the Lament Psalms, that don't seem to fit with that, where God is acting in a way that human beings are incapable of acting? Well, as you hear, once again, um, we get a little bit of redirect, uh, you know, the omnipotent phallic symbol in the sky, I believe Tripp said, isn't even remotely what I was talking about. I was asking, do we treat these psalms as delusions? Do we treat them as wrong-headed? Tripp, at the most, wants to say that, you know, as emotional outpourings, they're all right, just as long as we don't take them too seriously as actually saying anything about what God could or couldn't do. I'm not really satisfied with that, listeners. I prefer to go the direction of Walter Brueggemann, as I said before, and say, if it turns out that the Lament Psalms have one picture of God in the world, and the Gospel of John has another picture, and the Epistle of 1 John has another picture still, that's okay. That's the Bible that God intended to give us, and it's precisely in the form that God intended to give it to us. Our job is not to edit God's work, because God fouled that up, but instead it's our job to receive it, and if that means we have to wrap our minds around some contradictions, then so be it. Then finally, we get to this question of resurrection. Once again, it was John Cobb who brought up the phrase, paranormal apparition of the dead. Uh, when I hear that phrase, I'm very nearly 40 years old. I might be 40 years old by the time you listen to this, listeners. I think of Ghostbusters. You know that I'm a giant Ghostbusters fan, and frankly, what, you know, Egon and Ray and Peter and Winston were doing in that movie was, you know, finding paranormal apparitions of the dead and then trapping them with nuclear lasers. And it's awesome. So when John Cobb starts talking about that, I think he must be talking about ghost stories. Uh, now, I don't mind playing the straight man to John Cobb in the John Cobb Comedy Tour 2017. There's worse gigs that you could have. But we should be honest here that when he brought that up, he didn't use the word resurrection. He didn't talk about Jesus at all. Uh, what he did seem to be saying was that what I would call ghost stories, people seeing dead people, are basically the same kind of phenomenon. Uh, I guess he didn't directly say that, but you could infer it based on the gaps in what he was saying. 
as the resurrection of Jesus as presented in the Synoptic Gospels and John. I'm not satisfied with that. I think that there is a qualitatively different phenomenon going on there. I think that there's a textual witness to what's going on there. And I think to treat the two as being the same kind of phenomenon doesn't really do justice to either one. One of the things that Tripp said in response to me, uh, and, you know, again, realize that he's doing this to amuse the crowd, which Tripp is very good at. Um, and honestly, you know, even in the moment, I wasn't all that angry. I was a little bit afraid that I offend had offended him, and I went and tried to apologize later, but then I realized that it was just a gag. Um, but Tripp says that, you know, if you think that we need a dead Jew who is faithful to Abba in order to have resurrection, you have a small view of the resurrection. I'm going to differ with that and say that, yeah, we do need Jesus in order to talk about resurrection. That is one of the core confessions and convictions of the Christian tradition. And yeah, I mean, you know, if process means that I have to regard whatever happens in Ghostbusters as being the same sort of thing as what happens in the Gospel of Luke, then I'm not a very good process person. Now, let's be honest here. Tripp, you know, was at a theology beer camp, and he was experiencing that theology beer camp to its fullest. He might have overspoken there. I don't know. He might respond to this. I don't know. But I will say that, you know, just judging by what he actually said on that audio that you just listened to, there's a profound difference between what I would confess about the resurrection and what Tripp was talking about, resurrection, as a sort of philosophical category. I don't want to end this on a sour note, listeners, so I will say that Theology Beer Camp was a blast. Uh, spending time with Tripp, with Christian and Amy Pyatt, Todd Littleton, Jason Michelli and Tier Hardy, Luke Norsworthy when he wasn't verbally abusing me, uh, with all of these people who make all of these great podcasts, I mean, it was just a fantastic experience for me. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I thank Trip Fuller, and I thank National Geographic for sponsoring it. Um, I encourage you to have a listen to Trip Fuller. One of the things that I strongly believe in is that the best books, and for this I'll expand that to the best podcasts as well, are not the ones that have the right answers, but the ones that raise questions that you realize you need to answer even though you didn't know they were questions before. I think Plato does that. I think Augustine does that. I think Dante does that. I think Nietzsche does that. I think Dostoevsky does that. And I think that homebrew Christianity does that. Even if you are not a process person, even if you are not a liberal Protestant, I think there's a lot there to benefit from. And I encourage you to give them a listen, even if it is for the sake of raising questions that you'll come to realize that you probably need to answer. Well, at any rate, folks, this has been the final episode of the Theology Beer Camp edition of Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and because I was the only one at this event, I'm not joined by either David Grubbs or Michael Farmer, but I'm still going to say, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>